time. The princess, you have to take care of her. You hear me? Huh? It's nearly impossible to deny love when you feel it, when you experience it, even in those moments that you don't understand why it's there or where it came from. Seemingly out of the blue, it can take hold of you. For many of us, we believe it's best to go with it and enjoy the give and take and the bliss, but also to look forward to the ache of enduring the inevitable ups and downs, the smooth sailing and the rough seas. For with every challenge, the rapture is that much sweeter. Just like Han and Leia, Star Wars and its fans have had a similar exchange over the past 40 plus years. In December of 2017, while on a press tour for The Last Jedi, Mark Hamill visited The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I, uh, I stipulate that it's not for everybody. Not everybody loves Star Wars, but the people who do, I call UPFs, ultra-passionate fans. And they love this thing to the point where they relate stories of how it got them through their mother's illness, or they met their wife online, or they... It's just, it's become such a fabric of their lives. It's, it's truly moving. I don't see it on a day-to-day basis, but when I go out in public or to these celebrations, and so forth. It's just astonishing how passionate they really are. When it comes to celebrities who embrace their fandoms, you would be hard-pressed to find one as connected and beloved as Mark Hamill. The man who brought Luke Skywalker to life is the face of the Star Wars franchise and a voice for multiple generations of fans. From the young farm boy in the original trilogy to the aptly nicknamed Grumpy Luke of the Disney sequels to a CGI recreated Jedi Knight in the Mandoverse, Mark Hamill continues to be there for the fans, and we love him for it. He's there for the fans, the fanatics, the fandom. Words thrown around a lot when it comes to Star Wars. But have you ever asked yourself, what makes someone a fan? It's not a simple answer. It's really sort of a complicated intersection of things. Dr. Lynn Zubernis is a licensed clinical psychologist and professor at Westchester University. One of the main areas of her research focuses on fandom and the psychology of why people become fans. Part of it is personality type. You know, there are, there are people who are fanish type people that have a certain constellation of personality traits. I obviously have it. You obviously have it. Um, my daughter, as compared to my son, does not even understand the concept of being fanish. You know, she'll watch a TV show and say, oh, that was that was an excellent, well-written TV show, and then merrily go on her way and never think about that TV show again. Whereas my son and I both are the kind of people who get a little obsessive about something. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. That's the way our brains work. We have, you know, you could you can call it a little bit of being neurodivergent, this ability to really get 
you know, fascinated with something and want to talk about it and watch it and dig deeply into it. Or, you know, spend hours and hours and hours putting together a podcast, investigating it. From Brain Kick Productions, I'm John Gostatis. And I'm Keith Padine. We want to know, why do we love Star Wars? Episode 2. I know. I love Star Wars for two reasons. One, because I love fandom. This is what I study. This is what I do. 99%, all right, 95% of the time, I think fandom is a good, healthy, positive thing. So a fandom that has lasted as long as Star Wars fandom, obviously I'm going to love it. But the real personal reason why I love Star Wars is because my son loves Star Wars. You know, he has every year they have a Star Wars Christmas tree that's in the den that is completely Star Wars. He's got tons of Star Wars books. He's got tons of Star Wars model. He's an engineer now. But when he was a little boy, one of his favorite things to do was to put together models of Star Wars spacecraft and, you know, and know every specification for them. So Seeing the joy that Star Wars has brought my son, who I love so much over the years, of course I'm going to love Star Wars. Whether you simply like Star Wars, like Dr. Zubernus, or love, love Star Wars, like her son, there's still this experience that we're all sharing together. For those of you out there who have never seen an episode of anything Star Wars related, but still have a baby Yoda figurine on your desk or on your car, because he's just so cute. To those of you who have crafted movie-accurate cosplay and taken home every Comic-Con contest ribbon, there's something here for everyone to latch onto. There, there, there's the superficial, like you just said, that has a, a Grogu. It's not Baby Yoda. They'll get, you know, they'll get all crazy on me now. Uh, it's just Baby Grogu, even though I, I call it, I call it Baby Yoda still. I, I like that better. But uh, yeah, they're, they're drawn to it because they see the big puppy dog eyes, and he looks so cute. Welcome back, Mitch Halleck who was our guest in episode one. He's the creator of the largest fandom convention in Connecticut, Terrificon. There's not one fan that walks in there, even if they just know Baby Yoda, like you said, from a little statue that they put on their desk. There's a passion that made them buy that little statue to put it at their desk. There's something that speaks to them. There's the same reason why they buy a certain T-shirt that has you know the Mandalorian's helmet on it. They like the the, the look of it. There's, I, I know people that have Star Wars or Marvel stuff that have never read a comic book, never seen every episode of The Clone Wars. They don't know what the Bad Batch is. But the idea of you know a, a brave warrior with a sword fighting an evil empire appeals to them. That 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 rebel, the the the, the one guy who could stand against an opposing army or something like that. There's some part of that. That idea that could go back to mythology, could go back to George Lucas and Joseph Campbell and all that stuff that appeals to everybody in all walks of life throughout the world, that, that it's just represented. Maybe Baby Yoda is a little talisman that these people put on their desk so they can get through another day. You're doing this podcast trying to unravel this mystery. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to put a figure out exactly what it is that appeals to kids that are three or four years old and adults that I get that are 85 years old. When our parents were growing up, they were fans of westerns such as High Noon 
epics like Ben-Hur, and slapstick comedies featuring Laurel and Hardy, the Three Stooges, or Abbott and Costello. Within our fuel range are the planets Venus and Mars. One of these should be our destination. And here is the super rocket poised for its historic takeoff. And there it goes, up, up, up into interplanetary space. And at the controls of this sky monster are the greatest scientists of this generation, Abbott and Costello. We're not going to the moon. We're headed for Mars. However, when their generation started to become professionals and start families, you didn't see a connection to pieces of entertainment the way you see now with us Generation Xers, with homes and offices adorned with movie posters, Funko Pops, and decorative coffee mugs. I don't really think it's that different. I just think it's a lot more visible. Our parents' generation didn't really feel as comfortable talking about or celebrating their passions. I mean, certainly... My dad was passionate about a lot of things, but in his office as an engineer, there were there were no posters on the wall. There were no personal things at all, honestly, in his office. I think it just wasn't done. Dr. Zubernis. But if you think about, you know, media fandom and sports fandom, for example, are not really very different. It's the same mechanisms. You study both of them. The psychology behind them is the same. But people for a long time have felt really comfortable being passionate fans of, I live in Philadelphia. There's nobody who's not comfortable putting, you know, an Eagles whatever or wearing an Eagles cap or or Phillies or something. So I just think it was, it's more acceptable now. People can walk into your office and see that you have a Star Wars poster or I have a Supernatural poster. We should let you in on the fact that Dr. Zubernis is a huge fan of the CW cult classic Supernatural, starring Jensen Ackles and the giant Star Wars fan, Jared Padalecki. In fact, she's written six books on the fandom of that one show. And yes, she really does have a Supernatural poster hanging on her office wall. Nobody says, oh, this person must not be professional enough to work here. I think that is more what has changed slowly. I I think there's still some stigma around being a fan. I'm not saying that it's gone completely. I don't think it is, but I think it's better. And so it's more visible now. That stigma right there has held many fans back from showing a true love for their fandoms. Chat rooms, social media pages, or small independent fan conventions had to become havens for like-minded souls looking for people to connect with and share their admiration for a show or a movie, as well as for each other. In episode one, we talked about that stigma too, how it kept Keith and me from wanting to wear a costume or even a vest into the premiere of The Phantom Menace. Something held us back, even though we were surrounded by Star Wars diehards. Call us nerds, dorks, losers, we've heard it all, and Hollywood has enjoyed exploiting that cliche too. Yes. It's premiere night here for Attack of the Clones, but outside the Ziegfeld Theater is the real show, Return of the Dorks. Okay, I admit, I laughed at this bit a lot, and I remember it well, and it's really funny. In 2002, Conan O'Brien sent Triumph the Insult comic dog, remember that dog puppet with a cigar, to the premiere of Attack of the Clones, where he did what he was famous for. 
thousands of 35-year-old men waiting days, even months, for just a taste of George Lucas's table scraps. I'm here with, uh, all right, you're dressed as uh, a huge nerd, yes? Yes. No, but seriously, you're supposed to be... I'm supposed to be a Jedi. You're a Jedi Knight, yes. yes. And uh, what are the uh, principles of a Jedi Knight? To uh, always... Uh, to always defend truth and justice throughout yes. the galaxy. And to eat a lot of peanut M&M's. <laughs> Even the genius, Aaron Sorkin, showcased the little workplace fandom stigma on the West Wing when Josh Lyman had to deal with a fan of that other giant space fandom. I'm a fan. I'm a sports fan, I'm a music fan, and I'm a Star Trek fan. All of them. But here's what I don't do. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar. Let's list our 10 favorite episodes. Let's list our least favorite episodes. Let's list our favorite galaxies. Let's make a chart to see how often our favorite galaxies appear in our favorite episodes. What Romulan would you most like to see coupled with a Cardassian and why? Let's spend a weekend talking about Romulans falling in love with Cardassians, and then let's do it again. That's not being a fan. That's having a fetish. And I don't have a problem with that, except you can't bring your hobbies into work, okay? Got it. Except on Star Trek holidays. There's no such thing as a Star Trek holiday. We'll work hard around here. We'll make one. So, how does a culture start to overcome a stigma like this? Dr. Zubernis. I think it's changed mostly the way stigma always changes. I mean, the research shows that the things that change stereotypes and stigma is actual contact with the people or group of people that you're trying to stereotype or stigmatize. So if you never have any contact with the people who you have all these beliefs about, Nothing ever counteracts those beliefs. As soon as you have exposure to the real people who are in this group, whether it's fans or some kind of ethnic group, whatever it is, you can keep holding on to those stereotypes, but you can't do it in the face of evidence to the contrary. So the fact that fans just became more visible, social media, television, people started to see fans. You started to see television shows you know, that actually are depicting people being fans. If you're on any kind of social media, Twitter, Facebook, you know, the kind of mainstream social media, it's very difficult to be on those platforms and not see people being fans. Okay, you want some numbers. Here we go. As of this recording, Star Wars has nearly 19 million followers on Facebook, 16.4 million on Instagram, 6.3 million on Twitter, 4 million on YouTube, and 970,000 on TikTok. These aren't Kim Kardashian numbers, but yeah, this is a lot of fans. And I think that visibility has changed over the last 
20 years, the way people think of fans. It used to be you would see one article about people dressing up as stormtroopers to go to Comic-Con, and you know nothing else about these people except that they're going to Comic-Con dressed as stormtroopers. So you're like, oh, my God, that's, these people must be weird. There's something wrong with these people. Now, you know, you can, these are people that you interact, oh, oh, that's that's my uncle under that stormtrooper suit. Who knew? Or you can see a news report about a group of people who cosplay as stormtroopers and they do it for like charitable reasons or to help other people. So you can't start seeing that kind of thing and still dismissively go, oh, all those people are dressed as stormtroopers. They must be weird, bad people. My name is Quentin Salgado, 501st, uh, Connecticut Garrison. Um, costumes I have are Del Mico, uh, Inferno Squad from the Battlefront 2 video game, and the Rise of Skywalker Kylo Ren. We spoke with Quentin Salgado of the Connecticut Garrison of the famed international cosplay organization called the 501st, who, as Dr. Zubernis mentions earlier, are first and foremost a charitable organization visiting hospitals, schools, and granting thousands of Star Wars-related Make-A-Wish wishes. I grew up with a mom who worked in a hospital um, and uh, just kind of visiting her in the hospital where she worked. I gained a lot of influence around me about people helping other people, um, taking care of people who don't, you know, have the right type of health. And I eventually volunteered at that hospital, went to college for nursing, and I graduated as of last year. And I'm still working on my license, but I, I, I work in a hospital currently. And so my passion to be there for people, take care of them, uh, provide the utmost care I can, the therapeutic communication and thought process of being in their shoes. You know, you, it's very easy to see someone and get stressed of oh, they're, it's too difficult to deal with them. But there's a side to it that I think comes from that whole background where I see myself in that costume and say, person might not be feeling the best today. And them seeing Kylo Ren or them seeing Del Mico or them seeing a Mud Trooper or them seeing a Stormtrooper or them seeing Darth Vader or Luke Skywalker, whoever it is, it, it'll make their day. It'll make their week. I mean, you have no idea that the impact that that could make on that person whether it's a physical thing that's causing issues in their life, it's there's a side to it that is is it's at the heart of 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 doing it for other people and not for yourself. How's that for breaking a stigma? More after the break. There's more to fandom than putting on your best Darth Vader t-shirt, or even fully dressing up like Darth Vader. Something inside us, we're talking neurological, uncontrollable, draws us into this kind of fandom. Again, here's Dr. Lynn Zubernus. So the part of it is characteristics of the person themselves. Part of it is also situational in that we tend to be really drawn to fandoms at times in our lives that are either transition times 
which are hard for humans to get through. So it can be really therapeutic to have something that's familiar and steady and kind of a rock to hang on to, or times when people's identity is shifting. Either they're consolidating their identity for the first time as an early adolescent, which was is a lot of a lot of people become passionate fans in early adolescence because adolescence is all about identity development, or when identity is shifting later in life, when you are hitting midlife crisis time, when you are becoming a parent, when children are launching, any of those transition times, which are, again, all about identity. As humans, we form our identity within groups, and a fandom is just a group. So we're drawn to kind of like-minded people where we can feel a sense of belongingness and we can negotiate our identity within that supportive group. Before we all felt free to share our love for something this big, we held it in, thinking we were the only ones feeling this way. Until we found that community, found our people. Here's Mitch Halleck. It's the common language that everybody has, even though we were isolated and we didn't know each other back in the 70s and 80s, no matter where we lived. We all had that common memory of like waking up on a Saturday morning, getting a bowl of sugared cereal and plopping ourselves in front of the TV for a couple hours before we had to go outside. So that common memory we all share, and, and, and when you go to talk about it, you just thought it was you. You thought that you were the only one in the world. You thought you were in this little silo, and you were in your own little safe space, and nobody else was doing what you were doing. And then when you find out that, no, there's thousands and millions of other people who have the same shared experience as you of waking up, Saturday after a week of hard schooling. Oh God, school was so hard. And now I got my time to myself and my mom or dad are still sleeping or going out and cutting the lawn or whatever. And you had that, that magic window besides Saturday morning, but there was the Friday night watching the incredible Hulk watching wonder woman, watching the $6 million man. I'm doing a lot of seventies references, but then in the eighties we get, you know, everything from like Miami vice to other stuff, Airwolf, uh, tales of the gold monkey. When you find out other people, a team, other people liked it. They enjoyed it like you did. And you start, I love when I drop references that I don't think anybody's going to pick up. I even do like the odd couple references. I do it at my local uh, comic shop here in Newtown, Cave Comics. And I'll just say, well, that guy's happy, peppy, and bursting with love, which is a song that Felix Unger sang on the odd couple in the 70s. It was Tony Randall, Jack Klugman. I don't think anybody's going to know it. And suddenly across the store, I hear a guy start singing the song. And we both look at each other. We just kind of iron, like, uh-oh, somebody picked up on it. And my wife thinks it's hysterical. We have a language, a code. It's almost like our little club has a secret handshake or password to recognize others just like us. Or to put it another way. You know how dogs, I'm going to get gross here. You know how dogs meet each other and they kind of sniff parts so they that's how they, they greet each other they wag their tail they they like each other well well the nerd the nerd uh equivalent to that is uh when you come in there and you say well you know uh i'm gonna go lock s foils in attack position and no one in the room knows what in the hell you're talking about but there'll be this one guy who will look over you and go look at the size of that thing cut the chatter right through and you're like whoa and you're suddenly like that guy's one of me he he knows All right, John, this is a perfect place for us to jump in. You talk about the people who understand you when you talk in movie quotes, right? And Mitch was very specific about the things that he just shared. And as Star Wars fans, of course, there's so many that have become lexicon 
you know, things that whether or not you've ever seen Star Wars, you've heard the line, right? So if I'm saying this right now, every listener is thinking of the one line that we all know. John, what is it? Luke, I am your father. Right. And it's been used in every movie and in every TV show. I've said it to my wife's pregnant belly every single time. (laughs) You know, that's just what we do. But you and I, we'd be remiss if we did not mention this, that you and I tend to talk in not all movie quotes, but we have these movies that get stuck in our heads. And when something comes up that reminds us of that, there's just a line. It's like when you hear a great song refrain. So my kids will say three words in a row and it's some music line, right? And I'll just start singing the song, whatever it is. But we have movies that we talk about and there's a few of them and they tend to all go back to like the 90s. There's like some late 80s, early 90s stuff for you and I, um, which makes sense for where we are. All right, John, there's there's three movies that I can think of that you and I talk about all the time. Well, there's many of them, but can you think of maybe three that if they didn't exist, we wouldn't know what to say to each other? Like, what are the top three movies you and I quote to each other? <laughs> it's true. Um, okay, The Great Outdoors. Absolutely. Oh, there's many lines from that. Wow. Um, <laughs> Pounder. Wow. Then there's... Um, and we were just talking about it, uh, Christmas Vacation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when you're untangling the cords for your microphone. Well, not there, Russ. Yeah, a little behind the scenes for everyone out there. <laughs> and then uh, and then probably the most quoted movie uh, between us is The Three Amigos. The Three Amigos. And a movie that doesn't get the love that it really needs. Like, that movie, I remember seeing it. So I saw it in California. I was visiting relatives and this, we were in sixth grade when it came out, that movie came out. We were in sixth grade. We spent, I went with my grandparents to uh, Pasadena, California for right after Christmas. We stayed through New Year's and we saw the Rose Bowl parade and that whole thing. But we went and saw this movie that just came out called The Three Amigos. And it was playing in a movie theater in Pasadena that actually looked like an old, like, Pueblo church, right? Like it was fantastic place to watch it. And it sunk in and it sank in my brain. But to this day, there's not a moment. Like, I don't know if there's a day that goes by that I don't have some sort of reference. I mean, you and I, even when we sign off of our texts to each other, we're like, good night, Ned. And it's this thing of knowing this language that 98% of the other people don't know why we're calling each other Ned. Right. And, and at the same time, the people who do or who do hear it where I'm like, good night, Lucky. Excuse me, are you the singing bush? Right. There's these moments. <laughs> there's, there's all the jefe stuff, right? El guapo. Like, yeah. tell us we will die like dogs. You will die like dogs. Right. Like there's just these great moments. And it, mostly it's when you and I are facing each other in wiffle ball. We start hurling these <laughs> three amigos insults at each other. You know, um, there's, I remember one of my favorite stories and there's a, a movie that's probably one of the most oft quoted movies and anyone who have seen it, it has the best music fake band ever. It's called that thing you do. Uh, Tom Hanks created that thing you do. Right. And, and so there's this great character named shades who, who's the drummer and changes the tempo of the song, right? Cause his eyes are closed and just goes into it. He changes the tempo and changes the whole direction of this band. And they get to this big showcase and the lead guitarist turns to him and says, how do we get here? And he says, I led you here for I am Spartacus. Right. And so you were in a cover band in the late nineties before you headed out to California, you were in this cover band. That was actually after 2000. It was like uh, two, it was two, just after the millennium playing the greatest hits of filter 
Um, you were on stage <laughs> at the legendary Toad's Place. That's right. Which, if anyone ever researches Toad Place in New Haven, I mean, all the legends have played there. Their names are all on the walls. That's and right. you and the band were there, and you were playing, and we went to w watch you. And you had all your friends there. Your family's there. We're holding up the beer cans for you as you play. And you played some really great music. And as you were done with your set, we're in this legendary space. I remember I'm like, I'm taking off. I went up to the edge of the stage. I said, I got to take off. You leaned over at the end. You were in between sets, and you leaned over, and, and I looked at you, and I said, how did you get here? And you said, I am Spartacus. Yeah, you know, like, there are these things. There's this moment. You just did the coolest thing ever as someone at that age playing in this legendary rock thing, and you and I quoted this silly Tom Hanks movie <laughs> from several years ago. But when you bring in Star Wars to it, right, and we talked about, you know, you, I am your father, but there's so many things. Like, you and I talk about, like, I'm almost done writing this episode. Stay on target. Stay on target. A few more seconds. <laughs> you know? Um, but then also there's lines that mean something so much to us, like uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. We've quoted this a million times to each other that, like, you're going to find that the truths that we hold closest to depend on your own point of view, right? Like, there's that those moments of this movie that have both the cliche funny lines to it, but also like a deeper moving to it. And it is part of that language. That There's a teachable wisdom in Star Wars. And we're going to get to that in a future episode of, of why George Lucas decided to take this teachable wisdom, the, the wisdom throughout the ages the, that's been taught through mythology and all of these stories that we grew up with. All of these stories are there in order to pass on this knowledge one generation to the next. Yeah. Um, but but in, in quoting these things and in aligning with the dialogue of these movies, especially Star Wars, we're repeating this history, you know, as, as part of our vernacular, as part of right. how we talk about things from Tom Hanks and, and the character uh, Shades with Spartacus. I mean, there's even that's like a lesson in and of itself. Right. And not only that, but Shades is quoting another movie himself. Right. Yeah. And that shows that if you do it correctly, generation after generation are passing this down, passing this wisdom. Homer was one of the first. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because, you know, we're going to do an episode about pop culture and the references that Star Wars makes in pop culture. But the amount of different episodes that you can find where someone uses the I am your father trope. <laughs> is is absolutely amazing, but but you and I do it just as friends. You and I do it as being close to each other, right? Like yeah. you and I are doing it so that we have this common language and this common bond. And other Star Wars fans are there. We do it because it's fun. We enjoy the camaraderie. It, it's this language we've created all together, like we're this giant, huge family. And I think that Doctor Zubernis explains it best this way. But for a lot of us, we're drawn to familiarity, right? So that's the way attachment works for humans. We're, we literally have a biochemical reaction to familiar faces, which is very important to us, which makes us feel good, which makes us feel secure in the world. So when you have a longstanding fandom, the faces of that fandom, those characters, those people we have the same biochemical reactions to seeing those familiar faces that we do to seeing Aunt Jeannie, who we've seen since we were two years old. And for the last 50 years, we've seen Aunt Jeannie at our dining room table. So it's very reinforcing to just keep going back to those familiar characters. Those familiar characters also cause this reaction. 
just like those special people in our lives. Have you ever been angry with a sibling? Let down by a parent? Felt pure joy by seeing a friend you haven't seen in a very long time? When you start talking about the subject of biochemical reactions, we see that our own biology plays a role in all of this. Our brains react to things that we see, hear, and experience in ways that we have no control over. Simply said, there's a science to love. In 2020, the International Science Council released an article on this very topic and split the emotion of love into three distinct categories. Lust, attraction, and attachment. For many fans of Star Wars, they find themselves somewhere on the scale of these categories. Let's look at the first step, which is lust. Testosterone, or estrogen, is released to the brain when you see something for the first time and you know that you just want more of it. The article likens this to the honeymoon phase of any relationship. Remember when folks went back multiple times to see the original Star Wars movie in theaters? Well, that's stage one, according to the council. Next comes attraction, which brings dopamine and serotonin to our brains, the biochemicals that give us the warm and fuzzy feelings about something. It becomes more precious, something we hold dear, have become more comfortable with and long to see again. And finally, we reach attachment. The article, and we'll link to it from the episode section on our website, states, during the attachment phase, vasopressin and oxycodone create a sense of security that remains in the body through long-lasting relationships. Biologically, it helps support vigilance and behaviors needed for guarding a partner or a territory. So, when everyone got upset because Grumpy Luke wasn't how they wanted their hero to be seen, they had made it to the attachment phase of their love for Star Wars. The Jedi are romanticized, deified. But if you strip away the myth and look at their deeds, the legacy of the Jedi is failure, hypocrisy, hubris. That's not true. At the height of their powers, they allowed Darth Sidious to rise, create the Empire, and wipe them out. It was a Jedi master who was responsible for the training and creation of Darth Vader. <sighs> okay. Fandom. It becomes a part of who we are. When you first meet someone or fill out a silly biographical survey to break the ice at a new job or a school, many people will introduce themselves in a way that includes something, as Dr. Zubernus calls it, fanish. It usually sounds something like this. Hi, uh, my name is Keith, and I'm excited to be here. I have four kids, and I am a lifelong Yankees fan. Um, I love anything to do with Star Wars or the West Wing. Um, oh, oh, right, yeah, sorry. I like sausage, black olives, and uh, bacon on my pizza. Hey, everybody. My name is John. Great to meet everyone. Um, I'm a songwriter, musician, and, well, yeah, music is my bliss. I have a lovely wife and two boys. I watch the Red Sox, and that's the extent of sports for me. I'm a fan of sci-fi, Star Wars, um, action-adventure movies, and vampire stories. Not necessarily in that order. I live in Los Angeles, but I'm a country Connecticutian at heart. You get the picture. Our fandoms become a part of who we are. For Star Wars fans, it becomes as big a piece of what we're known for just as much as the color of our hair or the style of our clothes. 
Every birthday card from our Aunt Janet is emblazoned with a Star Wars character, and Darth Vader is on the gag gift tie we receive from our boss. But do we choose this piece of our personality for ourselves, or, like a bad nickname, does it get placed upon us by the people within our little universe? Dr. Zubernus. It's both chosen and not chosen, I think, is the best answer. If you talk to most fans about the thing, the fandom that they are most passionate about that is their thing, they will usually say, well, you know, it just kind of came over me. It's almost like a religious experience, the way people talk about finding their fandom. They'll talk about it, it was like finding home. It was like coming home. It was like finding my people. So there's an element of it that isn't consciously chosen, but it is unconsciously chosen because there's something about that fandom or that team or that band or that celebrity or whatever it is that speaks to a part of you that is looking for something similar. Dr. Zubernus mentioned a connection to celebrities here. Taking just that piece on its own, It's an interesting phenomenon that now, in today's internet world, fans have access to celebrities like they've never had before. It's no longer simply their picture on page six or a headline on the cover of the grocery store tabloid. Almost all of us now have social media, and so do the celebrities. The research on how much social media has changed the way we interact and the way we navigate our world as humans, it we haven't begun to really dig into that and, and research that. Dr. Zubernas shared a wonderful example between her beloved show Supernatural and the world of Star Wars. There was There's a lovely intersection of Supernatural fandom and Star Wars fandom because Jared Padalecki, one of the leads of Supernatural, is a gigantic Star Wars fan. When he wrote a chapter in one of my books. Yes, you heard that right. Some of the cast of Supernatural authored essays for Dr. Zubernus's book entitled Family Don't End with Blood, cast and fans on how Supernatural has changed lives. How cool is that? But anyway, back to her story. It was about his own experience being a fan. And what was he writing about? He was writing about being a Star Wars fan. So recently, Mark Hamill tweeted about being a fan of Jared Padalecki. And Jared Padalecki, who I know, just about had a meltdown over the fact that Mark Hamill knows who he is and tweeted about him in a positive way. So that was just, that's a lovely example of how social media has changed things, not just for fans, but enabling celebrity interaction too. But- Is this accessibility real, or are we, once again, being Jedi mind-tricked? It's sort of the perception of accessibility. Yes, we know more about them, but of course, whatever is put on social media for most celebrities is curated, self-curated, other curated, it depends, in some way. So it's not like you're sitting in a coffee shop having an intimate conversation with them. Because parasocial relationships do exist, I hadn't heard that term before either, so I looked it up so you don't have to. WebMD explains a parasocial relationship as a one-sided relationship with a celebrity or someone else you don't personally know. There are levels of PSR. The most popular is entertainment social PSR, which is the level where you're a fan and talk with other fans about this celebrity. A step up brings us to intense personal PSR, which is also referred to as celebrity worship. At this level, The fan believes they're in a personal relationship with this celebrity. 
And once someone gets to borderline pathological PSR, they're having delusions and fantasies that may find themselves scaling a large wall around a celebrity's home because they truly believe that celebrity wants them to. They're just not as pathologizing as people once thought. That can seem like fans know celebrities more than they do. So that idea of the parasocial relationship and its lack of reciprocity still exists, but it's more reciprocal than it was. And fans do know more than it was. Some celebrities don't want to be curated and do kind of just put out there what they want to put out there, especially on platforms like Twitter. So some people you do, I mean, I Mark Hamill is, is a great example. I think he's wonderful on Twitter. I have no idea whether that's curated at all, but it seems quite uncurated. But yes, but it, it, it has changed the way fans interact with each other and it has changed the way fans interact with celebrities. And now, thanks to TikTok and YouTube, we get to see celebrities being fans of other celebrities, too. One of our favorite examples is when Parks and Recreation's Adam Scott was a guest on an episode of Jimmy Kimmel Live. Kristen Bell was guest hosting on May the 4th in 2017 and had a surprise for Adam. And you love Star Wars. So much. And you told a story about how you invited Mark Hamill to your yeah, birthday party? I did. Um, I believe it was my second birthday party. I believe it was Empire Strikes Back was coming out. I mean, I remember everything about that whole season around when Empire Strikes Back came out. Um, it was, and so I wrote him a letter inviting him to my birthday party. Did you think he was really gonna come? I did, I did. Yes. <laughs> I, I thought at least if he got it and he was able to, if his schedule was clear, right, of he course. was probably gonna come. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> But he didn't show. He didn't show up. And you know what? I, I remember not being, like, crushed or anything. It was fine. Um, I knew he must have been incredibly busy. Yeah. But then it was, I, I guess it was, uh, like, Of course Mark Hamill showed up with a green lightsaber and everything. This is unbelievable. I'm sorry I missed your birthday. <laughs> I was checking my diary, and that week I had two other birthdays, a bar mitzvah, and a supermarket opening, so. This is, this really is one of the, one of the best moments of my <laughs> life. If you've seen this clip, the fanship washing over Adam Scott in this moment is palpable. Like a time machine, he's a kid again, and he meets Luke Skywalker. I think I would have been speechless myself. I might have passed out. At the top of this episode, Mark Hamill talked about fans relating stories of how their love of Star Wars had got them through some hard times. And Dr. Zubernus believes that this may be one of the greatest benefits that come from fandom. I think that may be one of the healthiest and most powerful uses of fandom is as inspiration. You know, humans are, we're narrative creatures, right? We see our whole world as narrative. We, we see our own life story as a narrative and we're drawn to stories. We have been forever. Media fandom is all about fictional stories and they're, they're all about heroes and finding a hero that speaks to you specifically and then using that as a way to inspire yourself to keep going. I think we see that in 
most of the sort of most popular fandoms and and honestly in a lot of the obscure ones too you never know what's going to speak to someone and which hero is going to be the person or the character who somebody feels they can hang on to and if you listen close enough the heroes feel the same way about the fans dave filoni the creator of clone wars rebels the mandalorian and so much more shared this as he got choked up at the 2023 Star Wars celebration this past April. I gotta say, I'm just taking this all in. I've been to a lot of these. I've never seen so many people. And I'm just like, I'm just looking. Literally, I'm just like looking. Ah, I get emotional. I'm looking at all your faces. And, and all the things you do to make this all possible. And I just, I'm, uh, I'm trying to like commit it to memory and, and just know that I see you guys and, and the variety of people that we have as Star Wars fans is a part of what makes it so beautiful that you, that you come in costumes or just a t-shirt. I, uh, I love how much you put into it. It means so much to me. If I wasn't sitting here, I would, I, I swear to God, and people say it, and I think we all know, I would be out there. I've been out there. I appreciate the effort you make just to be here with us. And just let me say that. I get to do these great adventures with John and everybody else because of that support. And it's a real privilege. So thank you. Dave Filoni is a fan. Adam Scott is a fan. Jared Padalecki is a fan. Dr. Zubernas, Mitch Halleck, and Quentin Salgado are fans. Keith and I are fans. Your eye doctor, your boss from your first job in high school, your kid's second grade teacher, they just might be fans. And you, if you listen this far, might be too. Or at least you're thinking about it. We'll explore more together next time. Why Do We Love Star Wars is produced by Brain Kick Productions. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by myself, Keith Padin, and John Gustatus, who also composed the original music. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Lynn Zubernis, Quentin Salgado, and Mitch Halleck. And thank you for listening. You can join fellow supporters of our podcast at patreon.com forward slash why do we love star wars subscribe wherever you get your podcasts leave us your thoughts about this week's episode and join the discussion on social media at why do we love sw and also at our website why do we love star wars.com you're not saying it this time are you nah okay good knock knock Who's there? Thesis. Thesis who? Thesis the way. <laughs> uh, that was good. You got me. I actually I did not see that going. I feel so dumb. <laughs>